Terry Crosby. Andy Steiger. Steve Kim. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Thank you for joining us, listeners, again. Andy is having a problem already. (laughs) You know what? It's funny. I didn't want to talk about it. Well, you're just doing it right in front of me, dude. I didn't want to talk about it, but I feel like maybe I got to talk about it. I think you might have to talk about it. (laughs) I'm peeling skin off my lips, Terry. Yes, I see that. And you're throwing it on the floor. I am. (laughs) Listen, I don't know if you've ever burned your tongue on something hot before, but I done burned my tongue and lips, man. I'm I'm rocking a Yeti mug right now. And a burnt lip. And a burnt lip. These things are so well insulated that it burned my lips and tongue. Uh, now listen, Terry, I just want to point out that this is a Yeti mug, but I did not purchase this mug. Uh, tell us about it. <laughs> I, I feel it like it's given, coming on. It was given to me. Oh, what does that say? And I'm flaunting Let's, it right here before oh, Terry's eyes. Z-A. What does that stand for? It says, it says Zondervan Academic on it, Terry. What? They yep, gave it to the wrong person. That's what happens when you write a book, you get a mug. And oh, that's a, drop the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that's about and, all you get, Terry. I'll tell you that right now. Andy, tell us what book's coming out. Well, I wasn't planning on mentioning <laughs> this, but I guess I will. It all started with the burnt yeah. lip. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Reclaimed is coming out in September right now. Uh, we're, whoop, whoop. we're wrapping things yes. up. Pretty, pretty pumped about it, and it's been good. Uh, the people who are you know, reading it, getting some endorsements going on, have really been loving it. So that's encouraging. Before we jump into our show, and I'm looking forward to this show, by the way. I am too. Just as a little precursor, right after the Apologetics Canada conference, I was, uh, I was at a church. A police officer friend of mine at that church that uh, had listened to a podcast by these guys named Rhett and Link. And said, I don't know if you've ever checked this out, but man, they talk about their deconstruction experience. And that's kind of a, a hip new thing right now is this deconstructing your faith. And I had not heard about it. And it was interesting, though, to me, because he's like, man, uh, I don't know if you want to listen to it. And I go, well, why is that? And he goes, it's, it's too disturbing. And I thought, well, now you've piqued my interest. So we, uh, we did listen to their deconstruction story, uh, at least Rhett's. I'm thinking maybe on another podcast, we'll talk about links. But uh, we're going to get into that in a moment. Before we do, though, I, I need to take a moment to just say a few things about COVID-19. Two thoughts for you. You realize <laughs> that you've spent too much time in quarantine when uh, you put something other than, than sweats on and your, and your wife asks you why you've dressed up. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if any of you have had this yet, but d- the other day, like, I put on a pair of jeans and Nancy's like, what's going on, man? Like, why, like, <laughs> why are you so dressed up? <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Uh, the other one is my son came up to me and he said, uh, hey, dad, I... Uh, I accomplished something pretty great. And I'm like, oh, really? What's that? And he goes, he looks at me and he goes, been wearing the same shirt for 10 days. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, and then, and then, uh, and then, he, then, then he took pause for a moment and said, underwear? <laughs> <laughs> 
Seven days. Oh, oh no. yikes. True story. So my wife and I realized maybe we should pay a little more check attention. Check in on them? Yeah, yeah, check in a little more yeah. on the, the clothing situation. How Apparently my son, 10 yeah. years of age, Ten years uh, yeah. thought that this would be a badge of honor. Um, he was a little disappointed that he told me because uh, his shirt and underwear both got washed immediately. <laughs> and I think he was hoping for a few more days he onto was, that yeah. trophy level. After he of, told uh, you that, he's like, mm, shouldn't have. Shouldn't have. <laughs> 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 right about that yet. Nope. <laughs> 20 days, maybe I should have. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. So good. So good. All right. Hey, guys, let's, uh, let's jump into this. Steve-O. Yep. Terry. What were your impressions? I, you guys didn't see this coming. I was the one who had the conversation with the police mm-hmm. officer who said, hey, <clears throat> maybe you should check this out, talk about it on your podcast. First impressions. I had heard a lot of rumblings about this a couple months ago when it first came out. When I mean, they did a number of episodes, right? But there were two in particular where Rhett and Link each take a full episode telling their personal stories. And I think those were the ones that really took off. I had never heard of these guys, but from what I understand, their show, Good Mythical Morning, and their podcast, Ear Biscuits, is just so popular. They've got Good Mythical Morning has something like 16 million subscribers, and this is their like full-time gig. And as it turns out, they have a lot of listenership in the youth. And so when they came out with this stuff, the impact that their stories were having on the youth was really being highlighted. And so a lot of people were expressing concerns and things like that. So I saw that, you know, there were some other responses that were coming out from different places. But quite honestly, like I I got busy with some other things, so I didn't really get to pay attention to it. And then you brought it up a couple of weeks ago and I thought, okay, well, maybe it's really time to actually listen to what they said and see if we can give a, a response to it. And we would have addressed this earlier, but given the conference this happened in February, February their, their yep. show. Yep. But given the conference that we had and then a little thing called COVID-19 kind of <laughs> really put a hamper to us being being uh, uh, quick on the draw on this. Uh, Terry, what were your impressions? First thought? An hour and 45 minutes, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. First thought, Andy wants me to sit down for an hour and 45 minutes and listen to it. All right. So I, overall, I mean, it was very interesting in a lot of different aspects. The fact that they have such an interesting, diverse listenership and a lot of people listening to them. It, it sounds like it's been a 10-year process with him, which is a very interesting thing as well, just to bring that forth. But, you know, he looked a little nervous at times, wanting to bring this out, but very, very interesting. Yeah, it, it was it was very endearing, right, to see him so nervous. and yeah, Because, I mean, this guy is so human at this point. Yeah. I mean, he had some pretty like pointed things to say, and I knew there was going to be a lot of things that I was going to disagree with him on. But just on a human to human level, like I found his nervousness, his anxiety and everything just just so endearing. And it turns out too, Rhett and Link, they're both from North Carolina, you know, part of the Bible Belt, and they grew up pretty solid evangelical Christians. And Rhett even Worked with crew, right? Formerly Campus Crusade for Christ, yes. and this it's, was a, it, they both they, did, they, they both, both did, did they yeah. both did okay. So th- this was their yeah. full time gig. I mean, their livelihood was wrapped up in all of this, and they and, preached, yeah, yeah. They attended church, preached, yeah, and 
link, he talks about this in his story. He actually led worship at, at his church right. as well. Yeah. yeah. And, and so then for them to come out of this and just hearing their deconstruction process, right? For one, because the, these are personal stories, it has that really significant psychological impact on you. And at the same time, like these guys were pretty committed. In fact, uh, one thing that I really appreciated was when Rhett started, he really, again, really, I, and I see many atheists do this, ex-Christians specifically, just emphasizing, hey, listen, I was a true Christian. Don't dismiss me by saying that I was never a Christian to begin with. Right. This was my livelihood. Right. I really, I had a relationship with Jesus. He wanted to make that point strong. Right. And, and so just coming from that kind of a solid background to where they are now, where Rhett identifies himself as a hopeful agnostic, now that could have a pretty significant psychological impact, especially on the youth, because they're thinking, well, I'm in that same camp that Rhett was. What makes me think that what happened to Rhett isn't going to happen to me? So this is quite a catchphrase, I would say, within the last year and a bit, right? What is? uh, Spiritual deconstruction. Yeah. It's not uncommon, but I think with their level of success in YouTubers and this kind of celebrity, comedians Mm -hmm. is their main area of, you know, interaction these days. It makes it a little bit bigger. And I think that there's something relatable to it that I found, you know, interesting and that's unique. And that is, is it's not your classic angry atheist approach. Mm -hmm. Right. This is completely different. This is your insider's perspective, long-term Christian, not angry, although there's hints of it with Rhett, but maybe frustrated, but yeah. but it's not this angry atheist approach. It, no. It's quite different. It's it's much more, as you were saying, much more endearing and human and much more uh, conversational that I think people actually can relate a whole lot more to. And it's, the, way, it's way more difficult to just dismiss. Throughout the whole thing, he used the phrase, this is my story. That's endearing right there. This is him and what he's gone through, and he's just going to relay it to you. Just that caption to me really kind of said a lot. And he even said at the beginning, right, that he is sharing his own story in a non-judgmental way. So yes. he was right away saying, hey, listen, if you believe this stuff, just know that I'm not judging you by sharing my story. That already makes the wall go down. And you're a lot more open to hearing his story, which I think is a great thing. I thought he set it up really well. Now, one of the things I have noticed is a lot of Christians are not used to hearing deconstruction stories. I am well acquainted with them as a pastor. This is something that I listen to a lot, and I've talked with a lot of people. So it was kind of interesting to me, you know, when maybe this is somebody's first time hearing a deconstruction story. They're, they're, you know, they're hearing about somebody losing their faith. Mm-hmm. It can be quite disturbing for people. Yeah. I didn't find it disturbing at all. It's something that I've walked with people through and talked with people about you know, uh, a lot. The thing that was really hard for me as a young pastor, by the way, that I had to wrestle with, and if there's any pastors listening to this, and if you're new in ministry, you, you need to be cognizant of this. It can be very easy for you as you're walking with people through difficult times and you walk with people through a story like Rhett's or Link's 
to take that leaving of the faith on yourself, like this is your fault or this is your responsibility, you know, that Rhett's pastors or his church or his friends or his community or crew failed him. That is not the case. And it's interesting because he even talks about it mm-hmm. where he's like, no, I actually had a good church and good pastors and they were friends of mine. Yep. This is Rhett choosing to walk away from the faith. And something's interesting there that so often in Christianity gets passed over. And that is this idea, you often hear people say, oh, people don't come to faith because of evidence. I always hear, I hear that so often, and it's just comedy. Mm-hmm. With the work that we do, we know that's not the case. We, we see people come to faith all the time because of the evidence. And this story really highlights the fact that people will leave the faith because of evidence as well. And really, this is the impetus that Rhett, in his story, seeks to communicate. Like, here's a clip from the show where Rhett talks about his faith journey and how it, how it began, and in fact, how it interacts with apologetics. Take a listen. I have always been a naturally skeptical person. Um, so, even in the midst of a very vibrant Christian faith, I would have doubts. Um, you know, I, I hear a little something about how the Bible came together, you know, how the 27 books in the New Testament were kind of put together and the way that, you know, the canon came together. And I, I'd be like, ah, this doesn't seem as clean as uh, maybe I thought that it might have been. Um, I would think a little bit about the resurrection of Jesus and I'd be like, that's 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 a tough thing. It's a tough thing, but it, but that's the whole point. It's tough. I have faith. I, I you know. And what I would typically do is I would like have these sessions where I would sort of rederive my faith. But also, I would do what I think a lot of Christians do is that when you have a doubt about something, you go and you read a Christian expert. You know, we call it apologetics in Christianity. Somebody who can basically defend the faith. These are smart people who have who can you know they can read hebrew and greek and they uh, they've been to seminary they've written books and they spend their life studying this stuff and they put out a lot of material that and and they're smarter than me and they are more knowledgeable than me so what i would do is i would just go and i would find somebody who was smarter than me and they would be like oh no it's here it's very reasonable to believe this there's very good reason to believe this and that would kind of plaster over my doubt in that particular area for a while so guys can you relate with that Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways, that's my story too, right? Especially in my late teens, early 20s, I was wrestling with a lot of the same questions that Rhett was dealing with. Um, For for me, I mean, we can maybe talk more about this later or not. For him, the whole thing about how you understand the book of Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters, and about how evolution fits or does not fit into all of that was a significant factor for me. I grew up in the Catholic Church. In the Catholic Church, it's not like in the evangelical church where this is a make-or-break kind of an issue. So I was fortunate enough to grow up in an environment where you can really go either way. It doesn't disqualify you from being a faithful Christian. But other than that, a lot of what he mentioned about, you know, the resurrection of Jesus or how the canon came together, those were the exact same questions that I had. And and I did the same thing. I turned to Christian experts. Yeah, that phrase, Christian experts, really jumped out at me because, you know, that's where a lot of people want to go. 
I think as Christians, we need to be able to ask the questions and then find the answers, right? So I think we should all be apologists. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that that's a good point. Being a Christian is being an apologist at some level where you have a faith and you have good reason for that faith. And that good reason is going to keep you in the faith. Now, one thing that, by the way, has encouraged me is, by the way, I don't see myself as an apologist, just to be clear. I just see myself as Andy Steiger that loves Jesus and is willing to tell people why I love Jesus. And that really is how I see myself. Yeah, I don't like that uh, phrase either. No, <laughs> I, I don't like that phrase. For uh, for whatever reason, I just don't. Word, yeah, yeah that being, you know, an apologist or whatever. Maybe maybe because it sounds like apologizing. I don't know what it is I don't like about it, but... Partly for me is the idea that when you call somebody an apologist, it's almost like you're letting yourself off the hook because you don't have to do the work. Somebody else will do the work for you. Mm. That's, that's part of the reason for me. Another reason is, well, it, this is something every Christian does, right? Like it's, it's not just me. Like I said, you're Andy Steiger who believes in something and he'll make a case for it. You know, Rhett and Link, there are no exceptions either. They have something that they believe in and they will make a case for it. In that sense, they are also apologists, not in the sort of professional sense of the word, but in the broad sense of the word, right? Everybody is an apologist at some level for something. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah. And I guess I this point that they make there reminds me of when we had to watch that TV show, uh, Sabrina. What was it called? Was that what it was called? Uh, the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Yeah, yeah. And they would have the satanic uh, apologists on on that show, you know, and really demonizing this idea of giving a reason. But everybody's giving a reason for what they believe. One of the things that I found interesting too, though, is historically when you read Christians of the past, they saw themselves as apologists. One that really stands out to me is John Locke. John Locke's known as a philosopher, but it's one of those interesting areas where history kind of gets whitewashed over mm -hmm. the faith of these guys, where people don't realize that John Locke also wrote a book called The Reasonableness for Christianity, where he explains why he's a Christian. This was a common practice, and you see this amongst others throughout history as well. It's very common that you'll read, oh, that they're a mathematician, but they'll also write a book called, hey, why I, why I believe. Now, you get the opposite as well. You have Bertrand Russell, for example, so you have a philosopher who will tell you why he doesn't believe. And he wrote a book called that, Why I'm Not a Christian. This isn't uh, a new thing. This is what we've been doing for a long time and what we should be doing. So let's talk about the reasons why, why Rhett left the faith. What, what were some highlights? He starts with science and evolution. This is really what really hit him hard. Uh, you know, he went from being kind of a six-day creationist to getting a book that really kind of flipped the switch Changed this, his mind. This is, yeah. This, this is interesting, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. And maybe we should play a clip here because it might surprise people to learn that he actually begins to doubt his faith because of Christians. Be a, Christ, yeah. a Christian scientist. Yeah, not Francis because Collins. of, yeah, yeah, Francis Collins in particular. So let me just play a little clip here uh, for you. I thought evolution just didn't make sense on its face. It seemed completely illogical. In fact, it seemed desperate. If you did start to think about it. It seemed like it's so, so non-intuitive to, it was so non-intuitive to me at the time 
that it just felt like a desperate attempt for someone who didn't believe in God to try to explain the wonderful creation that we had. You gotta have something. Well, if God didn't do it, you gotta come up with some rant. You gotta come up with something. Mm -hmm. And evolution was the best thing that they had to offer. And that was it for me. And of course, I had read all the books about uh, you know evolution not being true. I was, I was into that. In fact, I would sit down and I would argue with people and convince people who believed in evolution that evolution didn't happen. I loved doing that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I can make people doubt that pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Of course, I had never looked at the evidence for evolution. I had, I had read books about it written by people who didn't believe in it. That's what I had done. And I could roll those arguments out with the best of them. Then in 2006, I read a book called The Language of God by Francis Collins. Now, Francis Collins is currently the head of the National Institutes of Health. Uh, He's a geneticist who headed up the Human Genome Project when they mapped the human genome there at the end of the 90s. Uh, The subtitle of the book is A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. This is the kind of thing that I lived for. I loved it when someone who was a, a scientific mind, who was respected by the world, would come out and basically do this, make it reasonable to be a Christian, to show you that your faith was reasonable and smart people believe this. I ate this stuff up. So I got into this book. I dove right in. Now, pretty early in the book, Collins starts talking about the undeniable evidence for evolution evidence that humans evolved from a common ancestor with apes. And I was like, what, 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 hold up, y'all, what? This guy's a Christian? What? I know that's not true. So this is, this is one of those interesting connection points for me, guys. Most of his story, I have a hard time relating to, to be quite honest, because my journey and my story is quite different than his. Let's talk about this, because this is an important aspect of this that I wasn't a part of because I wasn't steeped in in church from a from an early early age uh, in a Christian family. The, there's a lot of these narratives that that I wasn't a part of, and so I'll talk to my wife and she'll talk to me about these things. I'm like, what are you talking about? Uh, you know, I and I think it's absolutely bizarre. For example, I've met Christians, a number of them, who growing up as kids were taught to believe and believed that dinosaurs weren't real. Absolutely. That was so you can relate huge back then. So when they started finding bones, people were their minds were blown. And absolutely, there was no concept that they were actually real at that time. Steve, can you relate with this at all? Like, I find it just bizarre, but, but it's widespread. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. for sure. For sure. Like I said earlier, for me, like I grew up in a very different church tradition in this regard. What you find in the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church is that evolution and dinosaurs and all of these things might raise some eyebrows for some people, but it was not a kind of a litmus test kind of an issue as it sometimes can be in the evangelical world. And so what I've seen coming sort of over onto this side of the Reformation fence, so to speak, is that this is really an issue in a very kind of a particular church culture. I find that this is very pronounced in the evangelical world in particular, and I don't really see it anywhere else. And I would say with 
people that are young earth creationists the most. Without question, because one of the things that I've encountered, I know you guys have as well, is oftentimes I'll do a speaking engagement at a church, and I'm talking about something like, why does God allow evil or, you know, something that has nothing to do with evolution. And yet at the end, when you ask for like Q&A, it's like, hey, that was a really good talk, but (laughs) how old do you think the earth is, you know, and do you uh, believe in evolution and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, (laughs) it's not even even what I talked about. But for some people, that is the only issue. And And the reason I think is because their faith is founded on that issue. They have bought into this false dilemma, and so they've got to fight over this because it's going to determine their fate. And that's Rhett's narrative right there. He went from that to believing that the old uh, the earth was old, Yep. right? And then once that, as he would say, that string got pulled and that evangelical sweater started to unravel. Sweater of faith. The sweater of faith, as he calls it. Yeah. It really all just unravels from there. Now, for me, what I realized was that that was a false dilemma. Again, maybe this is because I wasn't steeped in this sort of church tradition. It was easy for me just to go, oh, I'm going to weigh this out and figure it out. And I believe that there's the freedom within Christianity to decide on how I'm going to understand these views. And my faith isn't going to be founded on this question. I am quite comfortable with a God that created the world in six days, and I'm quite comfortable with a God that created the universe in six billion years. I'm okay with that. I don't have a problem with a young earth or an old earth. I hold to an old earth. I think the evidence is overwhelming for an old earth, so I hold to that. With regards to evolution, I find that issue a whole lot more complicated, but I'm okay with a God that uses evolution as his means, and I'm okay with a God who does not. Those are not critical issues for me. Now, one of the things, though, this is a problem that I found with Rhett's narrative, is Rhett seems to me that he doesn't fully appreciate that the sweater of faith isn't a kind of sweater that, you know, it's like if you were to unravel one Christian faith sweater, he doesn't seem to fully appreciate, that doesn't mean that he's now naked. What it means is he's got another faith sweater underneath that sweater. You have to have a faith sweater. You don't get to just take that sweater off. The universe is founded on faith. And what I mean by that is, is you, you have to believe something. You're going to have to believe something. And if you start to pull one string, so you're like, okay, you know, I'm not sure about this Christianity thing. I'm not sure about how old the earth is. I'm not sure about evolution and all those other things, right? And you pull that string and and you decide to unravel that whole thing. It's not like you just are left with nothing. Now, what you're left with is a different faith sweater that has to account for all those things, but it now needs to account for all those things in a completely different way. So, for example... With regards to the universe, do I see that the universe is just a random, determined universe? Because if that becomes my starting point, you have to understand that that whole faith sweater is going to get built from that worldview. Now, what I found with Rhett is that he just wanted to kind of sit there holding both sweaters and not putting one on. And that's what he calls his hopeful agnosticism. He doesn't want to embrace atheism, but yet he he sees these issues over in Christianity and he doesn't want to embrace that. So he just stands in this tension in between. 
I mean, he jumped the Christian ship, so to speak, and they use that language a number of times in the show. He talks a lot about how he's living with this uncertainty now, whereas he used to have all these certainties in his upbringing. Um, And one of the things that he brought up that I thought was very interesting is the way he felt betrayed by the people that he trusted. And what I noticed was that it sounds like for him, and I see this in my circle too, there's this almost this triumphalism when it comes to certain issues of faith, right? If it's about evolution, for example, you can listen to it for yourself too, but Rhett kind of rattles out some of the things that he heard growing up. There's no real evidence for this. Evolution is a desperate attempt uh, by those who don't believe in God. There are no transitional fossils. There are no vestigial structures. But then he started looking into these things and turns out, he's like, that's not exactly... The story is a little bit, a lot more complicated than that. And what he saw was that this is outright false, what I was told, that there are no transitional fossils. Well, we have lots of them. You know, there are no vestigial structures. Well, we have them, right? And so I think that really did a number on him because he trusted them. And then he started looking into this, finds out that's not exactly how it is. He just really, again, felt betrayed, and it made him angry for a time, as he says, right? And so I think that triumphalism can be a bit of a problem where Christians sometimes overstating their case. When I teach, for example, the Thinking Series online course, and we go through the section on God's existence, you know, some students, you know, God bless their souls in their zeal, they'll talk about how the Kalam cosmological argument is this let me prove God's existence to you. Like, this is a solid proof of God's existence. I'm just like, hmm, hang on, right? Like, don't overstate your case, right? I understand you're zealous for the for the truth of Christianity, but let's not do this because it can set you up for disappointment when you find out that things are a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, I want to pick up on one point that you're talking about, and his, and it was his loss of appetite for certainty. And that anger actually subsided rather quickly. It's interesting. I kind of had my moment of anger and atheism. And then that was replaced with kind of an openness and a curiosity. You know, it's interesting how liberating this one aspect has been. I think the biggest change that has happened to me in my life is that I've lost my appetite for certainty, specifically certainty about things I don't think you can be certain about. I think Christianity, my struggle with Christianity, for me, a big part of it was I had to keep aligning my thoughts and being certain and, and kind of rederiving my faith and why this was reasonable and being sure about this and knowing exactly what was gonna happen when I die and all this stuff. But when I was like, I don't think I can be certain about these things. It's like when a person, I've heard this happens, I haven't done it yet. When you stop eating meat, you lose your appetite for meat, a lot of people say. I stopped being certain about things. I lost my appetite to be certain. I didn't wake up with a sense of panic. I thought there would be panic. I thought there would be chaos. Um, Especially for someone who that's how you lived your life. And I thought there would be fear. You were so attached to it. Right, but it's been the most liberating thing that has happened in my adult life. I'm not kidding. So he grew up 
always feeling like it had to be certain in his belief about the Bible, Jesus rising from the dead, those things. Like these are the big things he's questioning even right now, right? So this whole certainty idea in his mind was huge. But as people that talk about these issues and arguments, that is not our approach at all. We're not looking for certainty in our arguments or what we're presenting. We're actually just presenting a plausible or a possible outcome Terry, to the arguments, right? Terry, this is such an important point. This is something that I noticed that he does a number of times. A lot of people have this concept, and truthfully, I had it as well for a long time. It's one of the reasons why for a long time in my life, I believed that you could convince anyone into the faith. You just had to have the silver bullet argument. You just had to have the lockdown, you know, choker hold of an apologetic argument that no one could get out of. And so I would look for that mythical, you know, argument so that I could give this lockdown evidence that they just couldn't get away from. And what you begin to realize is that the world doesn't work that way. There is no certainty. Now, I want to talk about this in a very philosophical sense. When we're talking about seeking to be able to prove something without a shadow of a doubt, that's just unrealistic. That level of proof does not exist. You can doubt anything. You can come up with reasons not to believe anything. You can. And I've met those people. And I've shared stories about friends of mine that, that are like that. doesn't matter what I say. They'll make up reasons not to believe it. I mean, that's just the way that faith, that evidence works. How this works philosophically is faith is simply that. It's this weighing of evidence in which a declaration is made where, you know, you've put on the scales, the evidence for, the evidence against, and you make a belief. Now, the more that scale is tipped, you can have a different level of assurity of that belief. And we would talk about that as, you know, your confidence or assurance or your level of certainty and those sorts of things. But it's not like that's 100% proof. You could still doubt that. You could still choose not to believe it. All those things are possible. However, you know, you've weighed that evidence and you've made a belief. And this goes back to the point I was making earlier. This is how everything works, not just faith. This is how science works as well. All of this is built on faith. This is an aspect of science that a lot of people forget. Two aspects quickly here. One is that science is built on a tradition. When you go to school, you're told things by your professor that you're taking on faith. Now, we don't have the time to go test everything that we're told in school, so we have good reason to trust that my professor's telling me the truth, so I'll, just, I'll believe that, right? Now, maybe if you've gone and you've done some experiments or, what, or whatever, maybe you have a higher degree of certainty with regards to that thing, but that is built on faith. One of the other aspects that's built on faith here, particularly when we're speaking of science, is that science is done through the perspective of a human being. Science isn't something that happens out there in this sort of objective, hard facts kind of idea. That's nonsense. Science takes place through scientists that are experiencing the world through their five senses, that they have good reasons to believe or not, that they're experiencing the world correctly, and that they're able to test things to come up with what they believe is the accurate way to see reality. So, we do this with our faith. 
particularly when we're talking about something like does God exist, or we're looking at things like evolution and those sorts of things. So when you're looking at evolution then, or whatever it might be, it's always going to be varying degrees. These things aren't absolute certainty with regard to like this idea of 100% proof. Before we continue, a message from Andy. Hi, everyone. This is Andy Steiger. I wanted to let you know that the 10th Annual Apologetics Canada Conference was a great success and that the conference recordings are now available. The recordings not only have all the sessions from the conference, including all the breakout sessions, but some bonus material as well. We have included a special class that Daryl Bach taught for us and Wesley Huff about how we got the Bible and can we trust the Bible. To purchase and download the recordings, go to apologeticscanada.com. And now, back to the podcast. One thing that really stood out to me was when he talks about the New Testament. Now, Rhett talks about his journey, and he starts with the whole creation-evolution controversy, and then he talks about archaeology, where he starts to doubt the veracity of the Old Testament because he just doesn't see the archaeological evidence for this. And then he comes to the New Testament, and he talks about... Actually, we can just play a clip here, and you can hear this from Rhett himself, and this is what he says. Basically, what I just saw is that there's so many people coming at this with an intention to uncover the truth, to find the truth, and they're coming to these wildly different conclusions. This isn't like science. You know, somebody does a scientific experiment in 1985 in China, and then somebody does the same scientific experiment in 2019 in California. If they, if everything is controlled, they're gonna come to the same conclusion. That's not how history works. And it makes it very difficult to come to definitive conclusions about things. But essentially, in the end, by far to me personally, the most compelling and seemingly reasonable view was that the Gospels appear to be a mix of religious propaganda as well as actual history. So there's definitely some history in there. I think Jesus was a real person, so does Bart Ehrman. But I don't think that as he is presented there is completely reliable. So the part that really stuck out to me is where Rhett talks about how these New Testament books, and I think in this case, he's probably talking more specifically about the Gospels, that these are really a mix of history and religious propaganda. In other words, he is raising a question about bias on the part of the Gospel writers. Because they're biased, we can't really trust the accounts that that come from them, Um, which I thought was rather curious because, I mean, in a real sense, everyone is biased. Andy, you are biased. Terry, you are biased. I am biased. Rhett and Link are biased. Everybody is biased. In fact, for historians, bias isn't an issue at all because they understand all of the material, all of the material that they're working with. They come from people who have a particular point of view, and they're writing these things from their particular perspective and with their own agenda. But that doesn't disqualify the materials that they're working with. In fact, their entire job is to not to ignore the bias, but work through the bias to put things together to see what's going on. Uh, Just because somebody's bias doesn't mean what they're talking about isn't true. I mean, if you go that route, then we would have to deny the Holocaust, or at least we wouldn't be able to trust anything about the Holocaust that comes from the Jewish Holocaust survivors. And so, with all due respect to Rhett, I don't think bias should be as big of a problem as it seems to be for him. 
And one thing I think that we need to recognize when we're looking at these sorts of things, and that I do appreciate about what they're bringing up, and that is that things aren't as cut and dry as you'd like them to be. They're not as simple as you would like them to be. Again, faith is a part of all of this. So they'll point, though, for example, to Bart Ehrman. And so he read Bart Ehrman, and he found Bart Ehrman persuasive. But you can easily read other equally or more educated people than Bart Ehrman who disagree with Bart Ehrman and can make just as a compelling a case for the New Testament. And in fact, Bart Ehrman's own wife disagrees with Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman's wife is a Christian. Bart Ehrman was a Christian, is no longer a Christian. And I bring this up just to say, this isn't just some simple thing. I, I think that this is where a lot of Christians will go astray here on this whole conversation. And I do appreciate about what Rhett and Link are bringing up. And that is that humans have the freedom to make a choice of whether or not they're going to believe or not. I think he weighed the evidence and he's chosen not to believe. And as a pastor, I've seen people do that lots. And, and it's heartbreaking for me. And, I, and it's one of those moments that I realize that people aren't some sort of, you know, meat machine. That if I could just give them the, the right data, they'll come to the right belief that people have freedom and they can choose to believe or not to believe. Now, I don't know if this will help you, but here's where I've come on this issue as a pastor. And that is that I've realized in the midst of this, that there's only two things that I can do. One is I can pray. I can pray for people. And I do pray for a lot of people. And I pray that God, by His Spirit, would be convicting, comforting, counseling, working in people's lives. So that, that's one thing. We can and we need to pray for people because we need to realize that there's a whole lot more going on here than just some argumentation. The second thing, though, that, and this is critical, is no matter what somebody decides to believe, whether they're going to believe or not believe, because you have to understand as a parent, this is one of the more frightening things is you have to come to grips with the realization that you have no idea how your kid's going to turn out. They're a human agent. They're going to choose to believe what they're going to believe, and they're going to act in the ways that they're going to choose to act. All I can do in the midst of this is love them. I can pray for them, and I can love them, and I'm going to leave the rest of it. I'm going to leave all that mess, all that deconstructed mess with God. God, listen, I trust you. I'm going to leave Rhett's story. I'm going to leave Link's story with you. You know what's going on there. Can people be like, you know what's going to happen with Red or Link? I don't know what's going to happen with Red or Link. I know God's going to work that out. I'm going to pray for them and I'm going to love them. This, this is the way I approach anybody that I'm ministering to. In the end, he basically says, if my story represents anything, I'm willing to change my mind. There's a place where we can pray, <laughs> really, as Christians. Come before God and, you know, ask him to do work in the life of people that are having these doubts and uncertain about things. Um, he can be that power in them to change their minds. Thank you for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more things to think about. Thank you.